Welcome to another book lunch, and that's the theme music for the book lunch. Um, this is going to be a little different because, for one thing, I had some technical difficulties. And so, accordingly, I wasn't able to use my ordinary computer. And so, we are in a situation here where the light won't be optimal, and hopefully, the sound is working. Um, that's where we are. At least we're able to do it, right? So the subject of this book lunch, of course, is The Free World by Louis Menon. I think that's the pronunciation. And Art and Thought in the Cold War. So there's a number of things I got to get out of the way before we you know, I have the, see my little post-its, I have little, um, this is, I always think of the movie Romy and Michelle's High School Union, which is one of the greatest American comedies, I don't know, the past 40 years, I think, in my opinion. And there's that joke about the post-its that Mira Savino or Lisa Kudrow invented post-its. And, and then they had a, um, there's a video on YouTube where they found the scientist who did invent post-its. And they had the, all the three, the two, two, two women and him get together and have a laugh about the movie. And so, you know, they apologize to him, you know, for, you know, he, he's a scientist with a sense of humor, invented with, with a sense of humor. So any of that, but those are my post-its. So back to the subject at hand. Um, I need to talk a little bit about um, Louis Menon won the Pulitzer Prize for his book on American philosophy, The Metaphysical Club. And that was close to my heart and because it deals with pragmatism and I'm kind of a pragmatist actually, which is goes along with my pluralism. And, and you know, in that book, he talks about Oliver Wendell Holmes and William James. So what's amazing about this book is that it's about the forties, fifties and sixties. So it's the mid 20th century. And if you think about the stuff created in those years, it's simply remarkable. So Fellini movies, Ingmar Bergman movies, Wild Strawberries, um, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis, Changed Jazz Forever, The Invention of Bebop in the late 40s by African-American musicians, Bob Dylan, um, Elvis Presley, Rhythm and Blues, um, Jackson Pollock, Abstract Expressionism, Deconstruction and Philosophy, Structuralism and Philosophy, Linguistics, um, avant-garde cinema. And he talks in this book, by the way, a lot about Jack Smith and Flaming Creatures because it connects to Susan Sontag and sort of the underground avant-garde movement. It also connects to Pauline Kael, the film critic, because Pauline Kael was dating a non-narrative avant-garde filmmaker named James Broughton. And it talks about it, which is amazing because Pauline Kael hates that kind of stuff. She's Ms. She was Ms. Populist. She liked, you know, mainstream narrative and believed in storytelling and wasn't so crazy about these non-narrative films that were so big. But any of that, there's all these interesting little, um, but I just gave you a list of all those people because I wanted to give a sense of, yes, those 30 years were special. Um, 
And the artwork created in those 30 years remains special. Question is why? Now, I think there's a lot of things in this book, a lot of things not in this book that are, um, because they don't have to be in this book. It's not a criticism of the book. You can't look at how, look, he's got, can't do everything. But I think there was a, I think the Eisenhower, so I think the actually World War II, I think the, if I, if I could put it this way, the investment, it's the financial investment was extraordinary in the 40s and 50s. And I think that has enormous causal power in the ability of people on the ground to sort of experiment and tinker because there was, there was, there was, they were able to do it. Um, and I think that's something that it's really, I think that's another thing is the specter of the Cold War. Now the Cold War, which we're living through now actually again, um, unfortunately, was when you had a um, um, basically two worlds. You had the totalitarian world, which is Soviet. This is after we defeated the Germans, et cetera, which is the Soviet Union and the satellite states, the communists. And then there was us. And so when he uses the threat of free world here, he doesn't mean it ironically at all. It isn't like free world. It's like, yeah, he's like saying we were doing something right. And we were we were on the better side, shall we say, in that context. And that's very important because there's a lot of chapters where he talks about Cold War liberalism, and um, which is a certain kind of liberalism that's not in fashion anymore. Um, actually, it's it's um, well, that's a whole complicated question because the, the experience now of the war in Ukraine and Russia is reminding people, well, of a number of things, reminding people that it's possible to make value judgments about countries and how they behave. And, and and um, and also that in those years, um, you know, Khrushchev and all the stuff going on with the America was really trying to create. It's almost like a, a focused attention. So it's like Martin Luther King Jr. in the same period says, "Why don't we live up to what we say we want to do?" So the free world is also, in a sense, a promissory note, as much as. It's an ideal. It's something, it's unfinished, right? We're not going to fill in the category of freedom. You have freedom to do what you, but we haven't said what you're going to use your freedom to do. And so they said, well, you know, they were self-critical in the 50s, believe it or not. It wasn't all conservatism. It wasn't all, I mean, you have the most radical cinema. The emergence of gay, lesbian cinema, underground film was going on, Warhol films, you know, and then you had a, the Beatniks, there's chapters on Allen Ginsberg and on the road and jail, all this very liberal freedom in art, Jackson Pollock, right? And the attitude was, you know, we could do better. So it wasn't a sense of resting on one's loyal laurels that we're perfect. There's no room for self-criticism because the entire civil rights movement was self-criticism of our free world as was the women's movement. And all this plays into this book. But I think I want to dig into this book because he's a good writer. And he, and he, what I like about Louis Menon is that he, let's, he, he, first of all, he talks about individuals. And so he'll say, let's see here. Um, he'll, he'll talk about Jackson Pollock and he'll say, well, this is what Jackson Pollock did. And he'll actually respectfully, literally recount Jackson Pollock, which is so refreshing. A lot of writers don't do that. And that's his style. So a good example is, um, let's see here.
Soon after the 1945 show that led Greenberg to call Pollock the strongest painter of his generation, Pollock and Krasner, Lee Krasner, Pollock's wife is a fabulous painter, great painter. We could do a whole episode just on her. Um, married and moved to Springs. There for four years, Pollock abandoned figuration almost completely. He did not stop his drinking, but he seems to have moderated it. And he never painted when he was drunk. Isn't that interesting? His first strip works date from 1947. So those are those years. It's not accidental that Pollock is experimenting when you have Truman as president and you have a self-conscious of like, we got to make, we got to do something with our victory, right? Is a kind of a, there's a kind of a, so I don't, I don't mean to, again, I'm an aesthete, right? So I actually, for me, politics always comes last or secondary, you know? And I don't mean to, I don't mean to say that, you know, I'm not trying to say that somebody is unique as Jackson Pollock owes his uniqueness to the contingency of 40s geopolitics or the U.S. I'm not saying it's a monocausal thing, but it does play a role. Compare that era, that time, to an era that doesn't invest in itself. Or, an, you know, an era, I won't mention any time periods, or a time period where there's enormous money, but it's only in the market or only among um tech entrepreneurs or something, or there's there's an abandonment of, of, of the opposite of the 40s and 50s, because the 40s and 50s was the New Deal era, right? In the New Deal era, you know, you, you invest in things, you always invest. And so if there's a choice between starving something and not spending the money, they always chose to spend the money. And that does have a trickle-down effect that does enable people to do things, enables Jackson Pollock and his wife to find, find a farmhouse and experiment in some, you know, New York... But this is interesting. So that's an example of how um, Menand sort of writes about the people. He writes about the people. And, and, and when he drops something that is, um, that is a, an evaluation, like say Pollock's drinking or say the fact that um, there's a lot of things in here. Uh, um, that when he does it, he does it. He does, first of all, it's backed up. It's like not... He's not inventing it. He's not putting forth opinions. He's describing things. And it's always from the perspective of the uniqueness of these individuals. These were unique people. There's a whole chapter where he talks about John Lennon and the kind of person John Lennon was and what the Beatles were like and, you know, as a band. And it's just, you know, there's uh, the, 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 so I see my post-its here. I hope they've come in helpful. Um this is a photo of uh, Merce Cunningham. Can you see that? In Black Mountain College. So Mer Mercy Cunningham was John Cage's partner. And again, this is the 50s, doing a totally non-narrative, abstract, I would say proto, almost queer, androgynous kind of ballet or dance, modern dance, totally revolutionizing dance here at Black Mountain College. So you go through this book and it's innovation after innovation. Um, uh, you know, and so I, that, that, that's kind of where, where I'm coming from. So again, Mercer, Mercer Cunningham was born in 1919 in Centralia, Washington, about 50 miles south of Tacoma. His father was a lawyer who chose to practice in a small community. Cunningham always loved to dance. I didn't become a dancer, he said. I've always danced. Over the course of his career, he almost never missed a performance, and he danced until he was 90. 
Isn't that a beautiful paragraph? Like if, if somebody, look, if somebody say Mitch Hatton, you have to write about somebody. I think that's a good way to write about somebody. Because, you know, you read, you know, it seems like it's just a bunch of facts, but you sort of, when you read something like that, you actually get a sense of that person. And you, and your mind starts to, I don't know about you, but for me, your mind starts to freely associate. So I think, well, it's interesting. You get a sense of, you know, of who this, this man was, right? A lot of examples like that. My favorite, one of my favorite passages in this book, and it's a long book, is talking about how music, artists and critics are totally different, right? You could almost say opposite. Now, I am a critic, so I'm not anti-criticism. But um, putting that aside, um, is a passage where he talks about the taste of musicians. He says here, most musicians are much more eclectic than their fans. If he had nothing else to do, Elvis Presley sang gospel, as did Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, and Johnny Cash, three other Sam Phillips discoveries. A recording of the four of them jamming in the studio in 1950 was discovered and released several years after Presley's death. Muddy Waters, great blues singer, saying red sails in the sunset. Gets better, wait. Robert Johnson saying, yes, sir, that's my baby. Gets more interesting. James Brown loved Frank Sinatra, but disliked the blues. I want to wrap my head around that because as you know, as you probably know, um, funk, which James Brown had a role in inventing, is, is deeply influenced by the blues. And yet James Brown didn't like sort of straight blues. He preferred Sinatra. See, artists, it's kind of like, um, was it Charlie Parker that liked to listen to Hank Williams? See, artists are interested in the individual. They're interested in how does the work make me feel? They do not care, or I won't say they 100% don't care. They don't care about other considerations. They don't care about where the artist's from, you know, what political party the artist uh, uh, belong to the, they, they certainly actually don't care about their own fans. They're not like, I want my fans to listen to this kind of music. Or that. They're, they're, it's actually real integrity. Like, you know, does this thing move me or not? And I like that. I appreciate the fact that James Brown is checking out Sinatra. Of course, everybody loves Sinatra because he's a phenomenal singer, right? Lead Belly was a Gene Autry fan. Okay. Chuck Berry's Maybelline was a cover of a country and Western song called Ida Red recorded in 1938 by a white band. See, so he goes on. It's an example of his, uh, Louis Manon's, I call this associational facts. He strings data together. Such and such happened. Such, such and such a person was born. And you get, it's a dignity to it. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, um, and I actually learned an enormous amount from this book. Um, there's whole chapters on Isaiah Berlin and Hannah Arendt, who I'm always going on and on about. Well, they're a big part of this book. Why? Because both of them were fiercely anti-communist and well, Hannah Arendt in a late interview said she wasn't sure if she was a liberal, I think in 1972 interview. And I think what she means by that is, um, well, Hannah Arendt is so independent and so, um, so free thinking that I don't think she just, I don't think she liked having any label attached to her really, you know, and that's probably more about that. Um, and she did believe in democracy. Um, and it was very, 
whole life is writing about the virtues and, and, and the fragility of democracy. But there's, I, I love the fact that uh, Manan writes about Isaiah Berlin and Isaiah Berlin has this notion of different kinds of freedom. And these kinds of freedom are in tension with each other, right? So the freedom of license, like I'm being free right now. I was able to do that because my arm's not on a cast or because, you know, there's that. But some people don't define freedom that way. Some people define freedom as this is what this is what freedom really is, is this. That's real freedom. I'm putting these in quotes. I don't know if it's freedom. Why? Because you're not just doing any old thing, right? So some people define freedom in a very narrow way as the freedom to do the better thing or the right thing. And that's a very common way that religious people, not just cons religious conservatives, but liberal religionists as well, define freedom, progressives. And, that, and Isaiah Berlin says, hold it. That's a mistake. Because Isaiah Berlin is saying, you know, you don't want to create a world in which the government or an authority forces people to do the good or do the better thing, or sort of makes, makes a, a tyranny or virtue, I think. That's my language, he wouldn't use that language. And so there is this tension, it's interesting. And, and of course, Isaiah Berlin, everybody in these years is thinking about the Soviet Union. They're obsessed, and rightfully so, right? They're obsessed with the, the, what this, because the Soviet Union was this great alternative. This huge superpower, we're gonna do things differently. We're gonna have no markets and we're gonna have no democratic decision-making. We're gonna have one party run everything and we're gonna to try to equalize everything. This wild experiment, which was an utter disaster. I mean, everywhere it was tried, everywhere. It wasn't, you know, the end of this book, he talks about Vietnam and how tragic it was when the North Vietnamese took over and how just everything got worse. When, when those folks took over. I mean, these were supposedly the independence fighters and the anti-imperialists, but they, he says, what is the first thing they do? They ban political parties and they ban newspapers when they take over, which is what always happens, right? So this is, book is called The Free World and, and you know, th there's freedom going on in these years and, and, it's, and it's free people doing free things. James Baldwin, I mean, there's whole chapters in here, long chapter, James Baldwin's changing his mind. You know, for a period of time, he's attracted to certain ideas. Then he abandons those ideas. Richard Wright, great writer, was a communist, and then he becomes an anti-communist. And um, he was in the CP in his book, uh, Well, Native Son. And uh, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, talks a lot about, that's a, Invisible Man, of course, is a novel about one narrator who has all these experiences as an African-American trying to find a, um, a home and feeling that that he's invisible and so he changes political affiliation you know one day it's the communist party the next day it's um it's um you know i don't know nation of islam or it's something else or it's a religious organization it's that kind of searching kind of thing and uh you know louis Manon, um i got a message i want to make sure that everything's uh everything's working Okay. Is everything working? All right. Um,
Here's something about how and on the road. How I saw the best minds of my generation starving, hysterically naked, angry streets at dawn. That's Allen Ginsberg's first line of how. 19, somebody wrote that in the 50s, man. Anytime anybody tries to tell you that the 50s were square, I mean, some of them, some of it was, yeah, but <laughs> you know, how and on the road are about things that happened in the 1940s. By the time they come out, the United States was a different place. When Jack Kerouac began his travels, for example, there were 37 million registered vehicles in the United States. The increase in car ownership reflected the growth in middle-class prosperity. There's that affluence I was talking about, the investment. It's a good example of it. Middle-class prosperity, and for many people, this made the beatness that Ginsburg and Kerouac represented, which had been appropriate in the immediate post-war years, a period of social and economic uncertainty, seem an affectation, a lifestyle choice rather than a social condition. So he's talking about how the way the beatniks were misunderstood and how the beatniks, you know, in the 50s uh, were um, appropriated, which is always happens, right? But, you know, I mean, I, I love, Louis Manon, if you're watching this, this is, this book, you outdid yourself. This, this book, okay, your metaphysical club is an important book, but I think you, I think this book is, might be, might be better. So I, I think they should have waited for your Pulitzer Prize. And I think, I don't know. I don't know if it's Pulitzer Prizes. You know, these are prizes, but um, Bonnie and Clyde, the movie. You know, Pauline Kael, how she revolutionized film critics. I mean, if there were no Pauline Kael, there'd be no Quentin Tarantino. Quite literally. I don't think if Pauline Kael did not exist, if you happen to like Pulp Fiction or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, those movies might not have been made. It's this chain of chain of causation, chain of um, of influences, right? And so my feeling, you know, what's interesting about me doing this book is that this is my least favorite period. It's too early. I like 10 years later after this. I like 1975, 1982, different, right? So this isn't even my period. This is not, but yet I read this book. Why? Because you got to love you ought to love the things talked, all the things I mentioned talked about in this book, because it's um, because it was special. Um, so that's that's my that's my unusual book lunch about an unusual comprehensive book, and I'm, I'm you know zipping through it. Ralph Waldo Ellison. I was just talking about the the novelist Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. Ralph Waldo Ellison was named after the transcendentalist philosopher. This conferred on him an aspiration that turned out to be one that he not only fully embraced, but after his own fashion also fulfilled. Ralph Ellison says, quote, I could suppress the name of my namesake out of respect for the achievements of its original bearer, but I cannot escape the obligation of attempting to achieve some of the things which he asked of the American writer. Let's go. I think I should close. 
I think I should close. Let's open this up and see what what it what. Oh, I don't know. It's just um. Emerson, this is from an essay called Experience. How easily, if fate would suffer it, we might keep forever those beautiful limits and adjust ourselves once and for all to the perfect calculation of the kingdom of known cause and effect. In the street and in the newspapers, life appears so plain a business that manly resolution and adherence to the multiplication table through all weathers will ensure success. But ah, presently comes a day, or is it only a half hour, with its angel whispering, which discomforts the conclusions of nations and of years. Tomorrow again, everything looks real and angular. The habitual standards are reinstated. Common sense is as rare as genius, is the basis of genius and experience is hands and feet to every enterprise. And yet, he who should do his business on this understanding would be quickly bankrupt. Now that's writing, you know, see that, that, I don't know. I mean, it's just, um, it's just, um, I know in my, in my episode with um, George K. Teb, we talked about compensation. And that's a, that's a, I don't want to, I'm going to leave Manon aside for, uh, uh, before we close and, and look at compensation. Um, there was a period in my life when I kind of read this sort of every day. I read this and I read um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki every day. I haven't picked this up in a while. You know, when you have a really uh, good edition of a book or kind of a, uh, like this, like kind of a, um, a finalized edition or ult ultimate edition, sometimes it's a little bit harder to find things than, in the, than the more familiar paperbacks of your childhood or youth, you know, if you get, but I, nothing can replace this because of the annotations and, and, and the, um, Um, nothing is more absurd than to complain of this sympathy or to complain of a party of men united in opposition to slavery. This is a, this is a writing about John Brown. It's a picture of John Brown. He mean he met business. He was not. It's funny. It's kind of. It's kind of. You want to see a picture of Emerson's daughter, Ellen Emerson? Look at look at this woman. And interesting. The ancient, struck with this irreducibleness of the elements of human life to calculation, exalted chance into a divinity. But that is to say, too long at the spark, which glitters truly at one point. But the universe is warm with the latency of the same fire. 
I don't know. It's enough Emerson for now, but it all connects. It connects to a free world, and Emerson was a free man uh, to the extent that he could be, as much as he could be, given his uh, contingencies and circumstances and the facilities of his life and so on. So I, that's all I'm going to say about the free world. Yes. Um, art and thought in the Cold War, because it was the Cold War, as I said at the outset, that shaped all of this. Um, I might do another episode about why I'm more interested in a little bit later things. That's a personal, we all have personal idiosyncrasies, you know, like, um, there's just music I'm going to write and I can't help it. There's music I'm never going to write. It doesn't mean the music I'm not going to write doesn't have value. It doesn't mean the music I'm not going to write is um, inferior to what I write. Uh, that there's not a place where it's just not me. Let somebody else write that, whatever that is. I don't know. I haven't written it. Somebody else wrote it, right? That's kind of the way the art is. And um, I appreciate the way he, Louis Manon understands the way artists, he talks about Jackson Pollock, you know, and he says Jackson Pollock was trying to solve a very practical problem involving the easel and doing things on the floor. And he was interested in those questions. He was not interested in, in you know, supposedly more elevated questions about the meaning of paint. No, but see out of these very prosaic, very quotidian, very pragmatic things, out of these come the most elevated things you can imagine. So we got abstract expressionism in this new way of looking at painting. That's 30 minutes. I think uh, hopefully it's not 30 minutes too long. And I hope you didn't feel your time was um, uh, wasted. And I apologize for technical difficulties. And um, I'm going to be back uh, next week with Darcy Leonard and some other shows coming up. Frank Lemondella, a very unique uh, chef and designer, handbag designer. There's a lot of stuff coming up, good stuff. So look for it and thank you. And um, I'm dressed a little more formally for even me than usual because of the queen. And um, I know that's on everybody's mind now. And so, uh, that's um, something I wanted to also acknowledge. And I wore an English tie. So have a good weekend and um, hope you enjoyed yourselves. Thank you.